0: governor bill lee's administration comes up with a plan to spend down federal block grant funding and a conversation with congressman jim cooper welcome to grand divisions this is the week of november 25th i'm joel ebert
1: and i'm natalie allison all right. So we are going to jump to uh, the the interview we did with Congressman Jim Cooper in a few minutes. But first, we're going to catch up with the latest TANF news. Um, TANF, if you are not aware, is the Federal Temporary Assistance for Needy Families program um, in Tennessee, That is a $190 million annual block grant we receive. Um, The Tennessean, after a report was put out by the Beacon Center, did some extensive reporting on how the state has $730-plus million sitting in unused TANF reserves um, that had not been put to use. The state initially said they were going to save all of that money for a rainy day, that it was necessary after uh, increased scrutiny and some criticism even from Republicans. Um, This past week, last Tuesday... The Department of Human Services, which administers that program, abruptly announced that they indeed had a plan for beginning to spend down this money that they were going to cap it at three years worth of TANF expenses, so around $340 million, not keep any more in the reserve than that, and also announced about $200 million or so grant awards that they were going to um, begin putting out in this coming year from the TANF reserves. And this is after, for about a month, DHS had said they had no plan to spend the money. We had asked them, um, you know, do you have a strategy for how much you keep in your reserve, or do you all have any um, intention? for how to spend this money. And they said no Uh, during DHS's budget hearings with the governor in early November. There was no mention of this plan. Um, Representative Brian Terry, he is one of the Republicans who's been critical of DHS sitting on this money. Um, Even last Monday met with DHS. This is the day before they put out their press release announcing the plan and said no one at that meeting ever mentioned to him, that they were going to release this. So, and
0: fast forward, though, to Tuesday, which is when the uh, press release yeah. comes out. That's when you guys find out about it, but also at the same time lawmakers and others find also out about At the this. same
1: time, the, the House and Senate Speaker's offices are finding out pretty much simultaneously, um, maybe maybe about half an hour before we did, but they were certainly caught off guard about this. And S-
0: Seems like a, a kind of a to-do. Um, normally, the legislature likes to be kept in the loop, uh, but f- certainly right. there were frustrations about that, right?
1: Right, which which prompted House Speaker Cameron Sexton to basically call for an emergency appearance by um, Department Commissioner Daniel Barnes, the next day at um, a House budget hearing, so the the Department DHS was originally scheduled to give its budget hearing in front of the House Finance Committee next month in mid December, but um, he essentially sent this letter giving them twenty four hours notice, saying, "We want you to come in tomorrow and answer questions about." why you all are are putting out this plan without telling us and, um, what we need to do
0: moving forward. And Sexton and McNe- Lieutenant Governor Randy McNally, of course, the day before announced that they were forming a special committee or was it two days before? Yeah, I just,
1: yeah, pretty much two business days before. So that Friday they had announced that they were forming a, what they call a working group. It's sort of similar to an ad hoc committee, but even less official, um, of, of seven lawmakers, uh, one one Democrat from both chambers and then some Republicans, um, to essentially study what possible solutions could be um, had for spending this money within, you know, um, meet, meeting the federal requirements for it, but also figuring out ways that would most benefit the state. So they had this plan, the The organizational meeting for this TANF working group was scheduled for Wednesday, um, which ended up being right before Daniel Barnes came in for that that last minute hearing. Um and and she during that hearing she was grilled. She was grilled by both Republicans and Democrats saying what happened. Uh, Susan Lynn, she's the chairman of that committee, um said that it was utterly chaotic how her department um failed to let anyone know about this plan. Um and then certainly others, you know, aired their grievances with her about the whole process and and lawmakers seemingly being kept in the dark.
0: Of course, there is no requirement for the administration to give advance notice. But generally speaking, when you have a Republican administration and a Republican-led legislature, they like to be on the same page and not be surprised on things. Uh, So this move, at least, doesn't go a long way to having uh, efforts in concert, right? Lawmakers don't ever like to be surprised. Uh, That can lead to friction, uh, unnecessarily so, and uh, can lead to, you know, let's say when the governor's administration wants to come out with an initiative in less than two months in its state of the state address, uh, lawmakers may see that and just say, you know what, Uh, whatever, we're going to go our own route. So uh, that was the uh, one time or or, or, or one issue that was grilled last week. We saw uh, a couple of other issues that were pressed, including uh, the fact that uh, we reported the day before um, uh, an appearance by ECD commissioner Bob Rolfe. Uh, about some uh, recent emails that had been sent out related to a, uh, grant fund that was quietly placed in the, uh, legislature's budget at the last minute. Ralph uh, Rolf faced questions from both Democrats and Republicans about what he knew, uh, related to these, uh, the, this, this fund and as many as quote 60 commitments. Um, and there have just been a whole lot of questions that have swirled on uh, the last week or so there have been either people, uh, kind of aside from Rolf, not answering specific questions or just kind of uh, downplaying their role, including uh, Commissioner Rolf. Uh, We're still looking into more information related to that fund, but that was sort of the latest in the, the House budget hearings on that.
1: And before we jump to this interview with Jim Cooper, I will say that the congressman called me out for not doing my homework, and it's true. Um, I, I referenced his one opponent in the Democratic primary for 2020, Justin Jones. He corrected me. There are two more. The other two are Meredith Matlin. She is a photographer and writer in Nashville, and the other is Joshua Rawlings, who last ran for office in 2014 as a Republican for state house.
0: Joining us today on Grand Divisions is Congressman Jim Cooper. Uh, We are here to talk about mostly uh, DMV issues, given uh, our shared- (laughs) They're so uh, exciting. (laughs) (laughs) Our shared issues, but thank you for coming on. Happy to. Happy to. So uh, a couple weeks ago, I guess, uh, I went to a a driver's license facility in uh, Nashville here and spent about six hours there. Uh, I experienced long lines and a problem where the entire state system went down, uh, oh wrote, my gosh. I, I wrote a story about it, and it kind of led to me getting a little bit more curious about uh, the current state of driver's license facilities in Tennessee. After that, you uh, wrote an op-ed uh, for the Tennessean, uh, and it sounds like you experienced a similar hellish experience.
2: Same deal. I w- actually, every five years, you get your ni- license renewed, and i just gotten that done. And then I got this notice, oh, now you have to get your real ID. So I had to go back to the DMV again. The license renewal part was fine, but I needed the license with a little yellow star on it because that's the magic document that gets you in the airport, and also federal buildings. And hey, I work in a federal office. <laughs> I probably. Is need
1: there one. not some kind of exception for you guys? You guys no,
2: no. The same rules for out everybody.
0: So, uh, for, for listeners that aren't familiar, I wanted you to kind of recap where did this come from? This is, as you hear uh, Tennessee lawmakers talk about this issue, they, they, they always gripe, oh, the federal government handed this down to us. But where did this idea of real IDs come from?
2: Well, right after 9 11, which is now a long time ago, we realized we needed better security because. Um, you know, terrorist threat, that stuff. So 14 years ago, Congress passed a law saying all the states need to help us with this because it's the states that issue driver's licenses. There's not a federal driver's license. Now, there is a federal passport, but hardly any Tennesseans have that passport. It's something like 3% of Tennesseans, we looked it up, have a passport because that's a document that can get you lots of places. Mm -hmm. But it's expensive. It's a pain. And you shouldn't have to have a passport. You're not leaving the country here. You just want to fly on a domestic airline. But to do that, starting October of next year, uh, we're going to have to get a lot of Tennesseans through these DMVs so they can get their real ID.
0: So many that I've heard from the state, they anticipate 2 million people. This year, it's been shy of a million. But that that tells you the gravity of how many people are supposed to come.
2: Well, and Tennessee's late to the party because, hey, Mississippi did this a few years ago. Georgia, Alabama, we're behind those states. Give me a break. (laughs) We may be behind them in football, but we shouldn't be behind them in driver's licenses. But I'm really worried come October of next year that people are going to be panicked because they will have a plane ticket in their hand, but they will not be able to board an airplane because they'll not be able to get through TSA. And you have a constitutional right to address your you know, elected representatives for grievances, things like that, not to be able to enter a federal building without this. little, And it's tricky because it looks just like a driver's license, only it has a little yellow star on it. And it's an opportunity for the state to charge you another whatever, 35 bucks. To, But the pain is waiting in line and waiting in line with all that documentation you got to have cuz I'm pretty good at paperwork but I had, it took me 4 hours and then when I finally finished bingo success then they ran it through some database that said I was probably the Jim Cooper in Kansas well hello I was standing right there in Tennessee I'm not the Jim Cooper in Kansas so this stupid database you know then I had to wait another little bit so and you get in there and they have a nice kiosk and everything at least in July when I did it there's no mention of real ID. Uh, it's really confusing, and it shouldn't be confusing like that. It should be simple, clear-cut, because the government should work for you, not against you.
0: The state is trying to do a number of things, including hire additional people. They say that they're going to bring on liaisons that will be kind of greeters at the front of the line and, and go through your documents. Um, but, I mean, there are so many issues that are kind of, uh, you know, coalescing at once here. You've got a, an increase in population like we've never seen. Um, we've got uh, outdated and old facilities where people are going to them as early as 6.30, 7 a.m., and parking lots are filling up right away. Uh, you've got, uh, people, yeah, that, that don't know what documents are, are required. And then you also have the fact that people don't even know which facilities they can go to. Some people, uh, don't know that you can go to participating county clerk's office. So, I mean, in your mind, do you, uh, you don't think that this is all on the federal government, you know, uh, uh, handing this down and, and saying, uh, this is a, a, an issue that the states must deal with. You think that the state is complicit or at least at fault in some sense.
2: Well, first, let's acknowledge the great Tennessean article on this, because you sent reporters out all over, and they were waiting in these lines, too, so they could see firsthand what it's like for real people having to experience this. Second, hey, I own this. I voted for it 14 years ago, but we gave Tennessee 14 years to come up with a fix. And as I say, even our neighboring states, even states like Mississippi, Georgia, Alabama, went ahead and implemented this years ago. So we're late to this. So how are we going to squeeze through all these Tennesseans just in the next few months? And it's true that the state government did hire 80 new people. Well, Tennessee has 95 counties. That's less than one new person per county. And some of these counties are big. Davidson County, we got a lot of people. We need a lot of help with this. And people are busy working. They can't take off time from work or school to wait in line for hours. And then the paperwork requirements are tricky. Sometimes you have to have a a real birth certificate, not just a copy. And if it's a copy, all this stuff, it's got to be what? Uh, imprinted, you know, mm-hmm. so they feel the markings. You know, this is tricky stuff. So it's really worth it to get your paperwork perfect before you even head out to one of these offices, because you don't want to be sent back time and time again. But it's the burdens on the state to get this right. DMZ has never been fun, but now it's particularly unfun. So it's going to be. And hey, I go to the dentist office tomorrow, and I love my dentist. But this shouldn't be like a trip to the dentist. This should be government working for you. Because we need people to board airplanes and to be able to enter federal buildings. Now, another worry we've got is some people are going to spread the word, oh, you can't vote without a real ID. That's false. A regular old driver's license is good enough. So we don't need any more voter suppression going on here. And you can go to the liquor store, apparently, or other things with a regular driver's license. And above all, you can drive a car with a driver's license. But for this extra stuff, and I'm worried it's going to create uh, two classes of citizens.
1: So in your capacity holding federal office, is there anything you can do? You guys passed, you know, this requirement for real ID, but how how does that translate to what can actually be done in the state which runs these driver's license facilities?
2: This is a classic issue of what's called federalism because we are the United States of America. Correct. And the Constitution really gives most of the power to the states. And States have always done driver's licenses. As I said, there's no federal driver's license. Maybe if you drive for the military or some rare thing like that, haul uranium around America, that might be a special case. But regular stuff is just a state driver's license. So we depend on our state partners to implement mandates, especially when they have 14 years to do it. But And if our neighboring states can do it, like it is true Kentucky is even behind us. And you should fear for the folks in Kentucky because there's going to be widespread panic when they finally get organized. Because the October one deadline of next year uh, is so far going to hold. It now, doesn't
0: seem like it's going to move well, uh, beyond that.
2: It's also always possible for Congress to move sure. it, but most of the states you know started doing this years and years ago. So are they going to feel sorry for a state that oh is so late and so you know uh, weak in its efforts to serve its own people because? We just saw that Tennessee has a $730 million backlog of unused federal funds. The state is turning down another billion dollars a year in health aid that we could be using with Medicaid. So here our state is turning down offers to help from the federal government. Free money. And they're not using that money to help serve our people who need help. That's totally wrong.
0: I wanted to uh, turn to uh, other issues that you're obviously keeping an eye on and, and focusing on while you're in Congress. And one of them is impeachment last week. Um, the last couple of weeks, there's been significant testimony. Uh, what are your, your latest thoughts on on some of the testimony and, and sort of the process that's played out?
2: Well, I'm not a big daytime TV watcher, but this is pretty riveting TV. So I hope people at least pick up the excerpts because to see some of these distinguished public servants testify under oath about what was going on. And they're basically unanimous in their testimony that um, there were two foreign policies for the United States. One was the official policy supported by Congress and funded by Congress so that we can beat back Russian tanks that are currently invading Ukraine, which is an independent country, just like Crimea used to be. So this is a real war going on today with Russia, and 14,000 Ukrainians have already died in this war. And we do not want Americans to die in this war. So while that official foreign policy was going on, suddenly there's this backdoor foreign policy that has nothing to do with the official policy, and that trumped the official policy. So the State Department people, the bureaucrats, Pentagon, National Security Council are unanimous in saying something fishy is going on here. So they illuminated that with their testimony. Now, this isn't clear-cut like Watergate was a burglary. Clinton was <laughs> you know. That was easier to understand. This is foreign policy. A lot of folks don't keep up with Ukraine. But this is basically a war, an act of war with Russia. And the bottom line is this. We have never had a president of the United States since World War II who's so friendly with Vladimir Putin, the leader of Russia. This is getting weird. And we need to help people focus on that. Because this is, to my knowledge, the president has never said one critical word against vladimir putin who is one of the most dangerous dictators and murderers in the world you know he has assassinated people in other countries like in england you know peaceful good countries allies of ours and we have done nothing to criticize vladimir putin there are a few sanctions on russia and on some oligarchs some of putin's buddies but for putin himself who was last offered the best we can tell the penthouse apartment in Trump Tower, Moscow, that he was desperate to build during the last campaign. This is not right.
1: So how walk us through the process of how you um, have changed your opinion on impeachment and and whether that needs to happen and whether that's a productive endeavor by Democrats. From what I understand is is before you weren't sold on it being the right thing and now you are. So how did you get from that point to, to now?
2: Well, first, you have to collect evidence. It's not enough to have suspicions, but the evidence started accumulating. More and more people came forward, particularly the whistleblower on this Ukraine matter that nobody knew about before. And then the whistleblower's evidence was corroborated by basically everybody, including people who are 100 percent Republicans. You know, so this is not a partisan issue. This is whether it's we find the truth issue and folks, you know, like Speaker Pelosi you know, no one can accuse her of being anything but a, a true blue Democrat. It took a while for her to be persuaded because impeachment, all that is, is an accusation. All it really matters is whether the Senate goes along with it and removes the president from office. And it's a heavy lift there because there are 20 Republican senators who are going to have to change their minds. So if you do impeachment right and the Republicans fail to do it against Clinton, they'd really botch that because— uh, that did not work for them. We needed to learn from those lessons of republican failure so that we do impeachment right if you're going to do it. And it looks now as if the evidence is accumulating. Now the missing piece so far is we need John Bolton to testify. We need Don McGahn to testify. Several of the key witnesses have been stonewalled by the White House. And it's a very important constitutional issue that we should be able to get at the truth. And no one wants to invade executive privilege, but this is a matter of U.S. foreign policy, $400 million in aid to beat the Russians. And we need to make sure that this is properly handled.
0: Are you concerned about the political ramifications of this decision, though? So let's say the House does move forward on on articles of impeachment uh, and passes this issue to the Senate. Uh, the president has seemingly welcomed this and and wants to kind of drag it out through the 2020 election. Are you worried that this would be a good, you know, object for him to, you know, they're after me again, sort of like, uh, us versus the world, uh, that would drum up support for, uh, the president going into the election?
2: Well, the president is a skilled, uh, political fighter. He is wonderful at communicating with average voters all over America. He creates his own alternative universe of reality. He blasts all the real media as fake news, and he only wants his version to come out. And shockingly, his version is very similar to Russian propaganda. We need to remember here in Tennessee, and this was in the Mueller report, the uh, Twitter page, Tennessee underscore GOP, was a Russian bot, a Russian robot, and it had 150,000 followers here in Tennessee. So... As one of the witnesses, Fiona Hill warned us, no one should just mimic Russian propaganda. And that's on the right and on the left. Because in the Internet age, we are so vulnerable, especially in our precious open society, to these memes that get created by really just, not just mischievous, but sometimes evil people that create division in our country, that sow chaos. And President Trump has been very good at <laughs> thriving on chaos. So there's a lot at stake here. That's why I want everybody to pay attention, not to believe me or you know, agree with me, but make up your own mind. That's the glory of democracy. Open public hearings, televise so everybody can see what's going on. Make up your own opinion of whether they're telling the truth or not. And these witnesses have been pretty amazingly awesome. I was lucky. I'm on one of the oversight committees. I got to see the depositions, and it's they weren't secret from Republicans. 47 Republicans had a complete ticket to go in there anytime they wanted to, but you had to... Show up and do your homework. I show up and do my homework. I'm a nerd. Hey, I own it. (laughs) And I knew privately these depositions were amazing, and I'm so glad that now the witnesses are able to be seen by everybody because this is the the work of journalism, the work of truth-telling, the work of democracy. Because when the people are not informed, bad things happen. When people are informed, I believe in the common sense of the average voter. They are calm, decent people who just want a better country and who don't want our enemies to take advantage of us? But right now sadly that's what's happening because as I say there's never been a president this friendly with the head of Russia. Normally Russia's like and you don't want to have unnecessary enemies, but this is wild. You know early on the president invited a Russian film crew with no Americans present into the oval office. You know this is this has been weird for a long time. But with the Ukrainian policy, now we're seeing the weirdness firsthand. Something fishy is going on, and we need to get to the bottom of it.
1: All right. Let's pivot to 2020. Big year for everyone. Uh, you are up for re-election. Um, so it's, I guess there's been quite a bit of buzz the last couple of weeks that uh, at least one challenger so far has uh, entered the Democratic primary. That's Justin Jones. Um, your office put out a statement. I guess, quoting you saying, um, you like Justin, competition is good. So I guess what, what do you think this primary challenge is going to mean for you? Um, certainly Justin Jones supporters are saying, um, regardless of what happens, you know, even if Justin Jones doesn't stand a chance of winning, it's going to force Jim Cooper to the left a little bit more. Um, is that true? Is that going to happen?
2: Well, uh, first of all, I have three opponents so far. So you need to do your homework a little bit more. It's all not right. just Justin. It's not just the folks who are most active on social media. It's very important to know the field. I welcome as many folks who want to run. Okay, and, so
1: for the record, who else is, is running against you?
2: Well, you're going to have to do your homework and look them up. Because, I'm, you know, I, you know, it's, I do not give free publicity to okay. other folks who are running. I like all my opponents. I welcome competition. Competition is a good thing. I'm on the ballot every two years. Almost every speech I make say, look, I'm not a big deal. I may have a big title, but I'm a hired hand. I'm on a two-year renewable contract. And if people don't like my work, they are welcome to kick me out anytime they want to. And that's called democracy, and that is a good thing. Now, I do have the honor of representing 700,000 people. That's a lot of folks. And you know, my wife and I have been married 34 years, and we don't agree on everything. But we've been married for 34 years. So it's very difficult, especially in a divisive, contentious age, to understand complex issues and to get to the bottom of things because it's easy to have misimpressions. It's easy to misunderstand things. Some people thrive on that. But being a nerd, I try to focus on substance. And I try to be super calm so that you can be fair to everybody in the debate because that's what's really important because I learn stuff all the time. I learn new things every day. And that's life, and that's a good thing. So it's very important that we all keep up. And I tell people, at least update your stereotypes because so many people are working from impressions they formed 20 or 30 years ago. That's not right because this is an exciting time, and we need to be focused on keeping America great.
0: I wanted to follow up on last week you uh, essentially updated your view and position on, on the Green New Deal um, I went to an event with Vice President Al Gore and he talked about how he thought you were you know, uh, supportive of the climate issue. But uh, how had that changed? Did you have a conversation with him that kind of led to you changing your position or, or is this – is there something more to it than, than the timing of that? Well,
2: see, as Natalie mentioned in her article, I supported the Green New Deal the day that implementing legislation was introduced, the very day – Because I'd said from the start that the Green New Deal is not even a legislative proposal. Look it up. It's a House resolution. That means it has really no force of effect. It's a nice sort of inspiring thing, but it can't do anything. And I think we all want action, especially young people. Now, the day I supported the Green New Deal, the implementing legislation was introduced, and that's called a House bill. That actually does stuff. And it's actually properly written. Because, see, I don't get to support ideas. I have to support things that work. And I vote on things that are written on a page. So that's part of the nerdy part of Congress. But if you want stuff to work, and if you want climate change to be solved, you got to get in the weeds. And I've read the books. I know the facts on a lot of this stuff. And it's complicated stuff. There's a lot of heavy science involved here. I really respect Al Gore as not just a national but an international leader on this he's won the nobel peace prize on this issue he is super important on this and we tragically lost 20 years on this issue because not even tennessee supported him in the presidential campaign when he ran for president in 2000 and that's an illustration of how carefully this issue has to be handled because if you get too far ahead of the public then you're not only going to lose you're going to set back your cause for 20 years now it's coming back, and I am thankful for that because I've had a great environmental voting record throughout my entire career because the environment is super important. We only have one planet to live on, and we have been screwing this up. Sea levels are rising. Don't have to talk to politicians about that. Ask insurance companies because um, it's amazing. If you live anywhere in a low-lying area, you better watch it because sea levels are rising. So, But see, there are different ways to persuade the public. And sometimes if uh, Democrats and progressives are not careful, they can set back their own cause by not bringing the majority of people along with them. So now that we have implementing legislation, now there's a chance to get the good ideas in the Green New Deal passed. But the Green New Deal by itself was more aspirational than it was effective.
1: Hmm. All right. One, one last question. So uh, the Jim Cooper going into 2020 is a congressman who now supports um, the Green New Deal. What about uh, Medicare for All? Can we expect to see any shift on that?
2: Well, I love the aspiration. I want everybody to have health insurance. But see, we have low-hanging fruit right here in Tennessee. We are turning down a free billion dollars every year because we've refused to expand Medicaid. That would do more in the short term to help our people than any other single thing. That is currently on offer by the federal government. Instead of us doing that, as I testified in the governor's hearings on his block grant proposal, so-called, his proposal is a sham. Uh, we should be expanding Medicaid, not doing something that no state has ev- ever gotten from the federal government, and that probably won't work. You, and excellent Tennessee in reporting, the block grant money wouldn't even have to be spent on health care in Tennessee. We've had more hospitals close in our state per capita than any other state. And we can't even get our hospital lobby here to defend their own members in that regard. We have... Tens of thousands of Tennesseans who are hurting for health care right now and all our state legislature has to do is accept Medicaid expansion as so many other states have done. We're one of the few states that hasn't done it. Even Kentucky, you know, expanded Medicaid. So see, I am all for going beyond that. But as a first step, if we ignore or forget the first step, we are hurting people because it takes years for bills to get through Congress. It takes a long time. And by the way, on Medicare for All... No less an authority than Barack Obama came out recently saying, hey, be careful, because if you're talking about taking away health insurance from 140, 50 million people, that can be a contentious issue. So do you want to go ahead and get in that fight now, or do you want to expand health care for every Tennessean right now? Let's expand health care for every Tennessean right now. We can do this.
0: Congressman Jim Cooper, thanks for coming on.
2: Thanks. Great to be with you, Joel. Natalie.
1: And now for this week's Notebook Dump, a Republican member has signed on to Democratic-backed legislation to repeal the state's school voucher program. Representative Bruce Griffey last week signed on to the bill that had been filed by Bo Mitchell essentially to put an end to the education savings account program.
0: Governor Bill Lee's communications director, Chris Walker, is set to leave the administration at the end of the year. Walker joined the administration after uh, serving on Governor Bill Lee's campaign, uh, and he is now set to go back to the private sector where he will focus on either political work or, or think tank projects, as he said.
1: House Republican Assistant Majority Leader Ron Gantt says he's going to file a bill to change the name of the state's legislative office building, which is currently named after Cordell Hull. He was a longtime member of U.S. House of Representatives and Senate, went on to be Secretary of State, and ultimately helped found the United Nations, for which he received a Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, Representative Gant would like to change the name to be after Governor, former Governor Winfield Dunn, who was governor in the 70s. Uh, he is still alive. He is 92 years old. Uh, Gant says he plans to move forward without involving the the state's historical commission, although some people are a little unsure that that process will hold up.
0: That's it for Grand Divisions this week. As always, you can find us on iTunes, Spreaker, wherever you get your podcasts. You can get us every week on Tuesday. We will be back next week with the new episode. Um, As always, we appreciate your listenership and reviews. Please continue to review and rate us. You can find us on Twitter at Grand Divisions 3. John Garcia and Erica Whitney are this show's producers. As always, thanks for listening. I'm Joel Ebert.
1: And I'm Natalie Allison.
0: See you next week.